Grab a bowl of Kung Salad, take a sip of a Gumbe Smash, and listen closely, because the Bahamas isn't all sunshine. This is the dark side of paradise. Each episode, you will hear the retelling of crime stories and folk tales from the Bahamas. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Our goal is to shed a light on stories from the Bahamas and to ensure they aren't forgotten or lost to history. We do our best to research each story and to honor the subjects we discuss. As always, you can learn more about us on our website at www.thedarksideofparadise.com and subscribe to our newsletter for updates on new episodes. We took a break for the holidays and hope that you all enjoy time with family or friends. Today's episode will be a little different than the usual tales of true crime. Today I want to shine a light on a festival that usually takes place during the months of December and January, but due to the extenuating circumstances revolving COVID-19, have been cancelled this year like so many events across the globe. Variations of the event are held all across the Caribbean, including some parts of the United States, at various times throughout the year. But the Bahamas is where it all began, and it celebrates it on December 26th on Boxing Day and January 1st on New Year's Day. Welcoming people from all across the globe to partake and spectate as parades of orchestrated dancers, colorful floats, and costumed musicians organize themselves based on group affiliations in a march for expressionism, talent, and most importantly, to remember the historical and cultural connections to West Africa, whose people brought as slaves with them to the Bahamas, the foundations for what would become the Festival of Junkanoo. Most scholars agree that the festival itself is of West African origins, celebrating the accomplishments of a 17th century African warrior and celebrated hero named John Canoe, who fought off invasions of Europeans and the capture and enslavement of his people by the Dutch in West Africa during the 1700s. John Canoe, John Connie, January Connie, Johan Kohn was one of many names given to him by the Europeans accompanying the area at the time. His true African name, unfortunately, has been lost to history, but from the records and stories passed down over time, we do know some things about his life and his many accomplishments. One of three prominent black 17th century merchants, a commander of a small army in Ahanta, present-day Ghana, in the Brandenburg Prussian-controlled colony known at the time as the Prussian Gold Coast. The forces of the Brandenburg Prussians from modern-day Poland and Russia occupied the area and needing to protect the region, began transporting stone from Prussia sometime between 1680 and 1685 to build Fort Friedrichsburg, which today still faces the ocean on top of Manfro Hill Prince's Town in the western region of Ghana. John Canoe was able to strike an alliance with the Brandenburgs that benefited his people and eventually they taught the merchant and trained John Canoe in the ways of European warfare. He then passed down that knowledge to his own people and together with the Brandenburgs prevented the attempts from the Dutch and British factions at the time from spreading their dominance over the region and selling his people into slavery. John Canoe knew the surrounding areas well and had gained the trust of the Brandenburgs and was put in charge of Fort Friedrichsburg sometime between 1708 and 1720. There was an obvious increase in trade under him and hundreds of ships that found their way to the port recorded dealing with John Canoe directly. John Canoe was given the opportunity to broker on behalf of the Brandenburgs and trade to the area increased exponentially, even causing massive disruptions to the Dutch and British trade operations. 
For years, he and his people fought alongside the Brandenburgs, but over time, they began to reduce the size of their forces in the region, and soon, the majority of the Brandenburgs had returned to their homeland of Prussia, leaving John Canoe and the Ahanta people to defend the fort themselves without any standing orders. The Dutch and British tried again and again to seize the fort for themselves, knowing it would be the only way to conquer the region. But time and time again, John Canoe won in battle. In fact, his skills in warfare were so well known amongst the Europeans that he was nicknamed the African General by his enemies. Meanwhile, the Brandenburgs continued to provide John Canoe with a means of which to supply his army by trading with them from Europe, and this partnership, along with the protection the fort provided, helped him spread prosperity across the region, even benefiting other groups such as the Wassa and the Ashanti people. In time, the number of his army grew from 10,000 to over 20,000 soldiers fighting under his command. The Brandenburgs also provided John Canoe and his forces with European-made weapons, which they used to fight off the continued attempts from the Dutch and British from capturing the fort, which he did for nearly seven years. Two of those years were spent waging a war against the British and Dutch bases in the region, attacking and severely destroying the well-known British trade post called Fort Metal Cross in Dix Cove, Ghana partially destroying the facility, causing major damage. The Dutch and British were unable to defeat the clever African military leader in battle, so they decided to hurt John Canoe and his people economically, by insisting to the Brandenburgs in Prussia that they cease supplying weapons to his army and to discontinue trading with Fort Friedrichsburg or risk disruptions to their trade in Europe. The Dutch, British, and Brandenburgs discussed their grievances and the Brandenburgs decidedly excluded John Canoe from their negotiations. He and his people were blindsided when they were informed that the Brandenburgs had sold off all its possessions in the Gold Coast, including Fort Friedrichsburg. Although the fort was no longer a possession of his allies, the Brandenburgs, having sold it to the Dutch, John Canoe considered it a betrayal, as he had fought and lost many warriors in the defense of the fort on behalf of the Brandenburgs, after everything he and his people did to get where they were, they were unwilling to relinquish control of the trade and the fort that protected them, a strategically placed defensive structure that the Dutch needed in order to secure the region. The protection of the fort that the region and his people in particular benefited from was being taken away from them, and the only option they felt they had left was to fight. But this time, with no continued support from Prussia and an already dwindling trade due to the Dutch and British stranglehold on their operations, the British attacked when John Canoe and his people were at their lowest. The Brits enlisted the help of a neighboring group known as the Fanta people, enemies of John Canoe, and together they were able to conquer the fort and the surrounding area known as Prince's Town. The British didn't want to kill John Canoe. They wanted him to suffer after embarrassing their forces repeatedly over the course of 20 years he and his people helped protect Prince's Town and Fort Friedrichsburg. They wanted to capture John Canoe and to either enslave him or have him sold as a slave in order to douse the flames of rebellion he inspired in his people. Those that weren't killed or didn't escape were captured and sold off into slavery with the goal that no other would take up his cause. A black man who was superior in ground and naval warfare at a time when people of color were considered property on par with cattle shattered the preconceived notions of what the Europeans considered to be the wild, untamed natives of Africa. His skill in trade, Industry and battle were revered across Africa during colonialism. The British may had defeated John Canoe at Prince's Town, taking the fort and pillaging whatever they could, but they failed to capture or kill John Canoe. 
who according to the historical accounts managed to escape after the battle, disappearing never to be seen or heard from again. His numerous accomplishments as a black man during the 17th century needs to be acknowledged. Not only did he save the lives of captured slaves and won a number of battles against European invaders, he proved that successful partnerships between Africans and Europeans could be more than just tools of war, but could be used to foster and promote a better way of life economically for both Africans and Europeans living on the continent. His willingness to fight and defend what was right was a courageous act of bravery against the European colonial establishment in Africa at the time. Today we celebrate Junkanoo in the Caribbean and the Fancy Dress Festival, also called Kakamotobi in Ghana, to which it closely resembles. They both honor the heroism displayed by John Canoe, who fought off European invaders from selling Africans into slavery and conquering more of the region. It's still debated, but it seems from the historical evidence that Ghanans and a number of West African slaves from various cultures brought the foundations of both festivals and the stories of John Canoe with them to the Bahamas. The Kakamotobi, the fancy dress festival, which is celebrated in Ghana, shares obvious similarities with Junkanoo in the Bahamas. It's undeniable that the two events are linked through the styles of costume, music, and even the time of year celebrated, which coincidentally falls on the day after Christmas, December 26th, called Boxing Day, and once again on New Year's Day, which falls on January 1st. Both countries consider the events to be extremely significant culturally, but in the Bahamas, Junkanoo has become a religion, an integral part of the rich and vibrant culture of the Bahamas since the 1800s. During pre-emancipation in the Bahamas during the 1800s, a law was passed that gave slaves three days off for the year, mandated by law on the British colony, and they used the time off from the backbreaking labor on the island's plantations to spend time with family, friends, and experience freedom, even if it was for only three days and not absolute. Eventually, over the years, the enslaved groups on the island began to celebrate in a much grander fashion, wearing masks and fabricating costumes made of rags, straw, and whatever else could be found. They used the festival to honor an important figure in West African culture, and those with musical abilities played instruments like goatskin drums, which the slaves tuned and stretched near an open fire and is still practiced even today. Other instruments used were cowbells and horns, which when played in unison by the slaves filled the air with an electricity and the pounding of the drums resulted in a pulse that could be felt from head to toe. A coming together of various ethnic groups from West Africa, who all suffered as one tribe while under British rule, many living on the many plantations on the island, were not permitted or were even discouraged under threat of punishment from displaying any form of culture and adhered to strict rules during slavery in the Bahamas. Anthropologists theorized that the incorporation of John Canoe into what would be eventually called the John Canoe Festival most likely acted as a mechanism to help aid the enslaved people rekindle their lost connection to their homeland. The festival was originally held in the mainly black occupied areas of the island of Nassau, specifically an area known as Over the Hill, which was a community of slaves in the colony who held the event within the privacy of their own communities away from the eyes of the slave owners. Over time, the festival wasn't just used to celebrate the three days free from work the slaves received or John Canoe, but it was used as a tool for social activism directed towards the white oligarchs that controlled the island. Local slaves dressed in colorfully spectacular costumes 
danced and played music as the procession marched in the streets towards a white controlled portion of the island known as Bay Street, which was the island's downtown area home to many businesses owned by Europeans. Reaching Bay Street, some of the slaves had their faces painted with a paste of white flour and water to mock and impersonate their masters, and white locals were at first conflicted on how to feel about the overt freedom of expression on display. The group marched around the Bay Street area and the adjacent Shirley Street, looping the area numerous times, and eventually, over time, this path would become the decided route the festival would take. Eventually, the local white population on the island came to enjoy the festivities almost as much as the slaves did. Finding it to be a form of entertainment, they came to joyfully expect every holiday season. But in the year 1899, the festival and the celebrations were halted when a large group of slaves began to riot, destroying a number of white-owned businesses on Bay and Shirley Street, and the government established a law called the Street Nuisance Prohibition Act that imposed strict limitations on the length and frequency of the festivals. As the Bahamas grew in popularity as a tourist destination, the government re-evaluated their position on the festival and re-evaluated its cultural and economic significance to the country, but not completely on the basis of allowing the marginalized groups on the island to freedom of expression, but to also commoditize the event to lure more tourists seeking authentic experiences in the Caribbean. And soon, tourists came from all across the globe to witness the festival called Junkanoo, and the Bahamas' reputation as one of the premier tourist destinations in the Caribbean grew considerably because of it. In the 1920s, some festival goers, in order to promote one of the country's main industries that was experiencing a boom at the time, were photographed wearing costumes made purely out of dried sponges collected from the ocean floor. The event grew from a small local affair into a large-scale national event that sparked imitations all across the Caribbean, such as Carnival held in Trinidad and Tobago, but none of them come close to the original, that is Junkanoo. During the months of December and January for two nights out of the year, the busiest part of the island called Downtown on Bay Street, where many of the white-owned businesses still reside, are shuttered so that bleachers can be erected for the hundreds, sometimes thousands of spectators each year. Food stalls can be found every 10 feet selling local cuisine such as kung fritters and cracked kunk, along with flavorful alcoholic drinks like the Bahama Mama or our local beer called Kalik, native to the Bahamas. What began as a festival with local slaves all sharing in the experience together, joining in on the festivities, now consists of various teams competing for prizes and notoriety, some consisting of hundreds of members, each vying to outdo the other in the race to see who will have the best music, choreography, costumes, and message. What was once a mixture of local musicians expressing their hidden or suffocated talents has grown into marching orchestras and parades of performers. At its inception, the majority of locals, most of them slaves, all took to the streets in solidarity to celebrate and sometimes protest during the festival of Junkanoo. But today, many locals choose to spectate rather than partake in the event, which has been partly consumed with advertisements, competition, and reward. In its truest form, Junkanoo is a gathering where cultural identity, expressionism, and freedom is celebrated and should be experienced by every man, woman, and child of the Bahamas. The festival has evolved over time, but we should never forget what Junkanoo meant to our ancestors. Costumes which were once made of dried local sponges, sometimes even rags, evolved today into meticulously thought-out designs, expertly crafted and duplicated dozens, 
sometimes hundreds of times to create a vivid pageantry of dancers and performers. Wearing costumes created by using a base of cardboard cut into various shapes that's then painted with a mixture of water and glue to which colored crepe paper is applied in a dizzying array of patterns and colors. The costumes are then outlined with hundreds of faux jewels and beads. These designs are closely kept secrets of the Junkanoo groups all competing for the first place spot and the $10,000 grand prize. The floats have grown exponentially since the festival first began, evolving from paper figures and puppets on sticks to some of them now weighing hundreds of pounds with built-in mechanisms to control lights and animatronics while being carried by team members underneath. Some floats display messages to foster public awareness on issues facing the community, and some are moving billboards promoting local businesses. Sometime between 10 p.m. and 12 a.m., the event begins on Bay Street, looping the adjacent Shirley Street, and ends at various times the next day, usually no later than 9 a.m. Tickets are sold well in advance, ranging between $20 and $100 for bleacher seating, and $150 or more for private balconies provided by businesses overlooking the festival on Bay Street. Guests, both local and foreign, are welcome to watch from the sidewalks, which don't usually have the optimal views like the paid tickets provide, but it does allow for those who wish to watch the festival can do so freely. There is no single event more important to the people of the Bahamas than Junkanoo. The Super Bowl of the Bahamas, as it's been nicknamed by some, is as fierce and sacred a competition as any major sporting event in Western society. Junkanoo teams like the Valley Boys, the Saxon Superstars, One Family, and Roots have been the predominant Junkanoo groups in the Bahamas for decades. The teams are as revered as the Miami Dolphins to Floridians or the Thanksgiving Day Parade to New York City. The team rivalry is not taken lightly in the Bahamas, and Junkanoo enthusiasts can be quite fanatical with the level of dedication they express for their team. It's become generational, dynastic in nature, and entire families and communities take part in bringing the team's ideas to life. From a young age, children in the Bahamas understand the cultural significance of the festival, and it gives Bahamian people immense pride to know that our small country has given something to history that has been adopted across the globe, and although they may try, the goatskin drums, cowbells, horns, costumes, and dancers that is Junkanoo can't be duplicated or imitated. It is uniquely Bahamian. For the first time in decades because of the COVID-19 pandemic, the event was canceled to resume in 2021. Post-COVID, if you've never been to a Junkanoo parade in the Bahamas, plan a trip during the months of December and January to witness a cultural phenomenon. And if you're unable to visit during those months, the Atlantis Resort and Casino holds a weekly Junkanoo parade in their marina village every weekend on Saturday at 9.30 p.m. And on Fridays during the month of August, the island of Nassau holds the Gombe Summer Festival which is held at the Arawak Key, a local and tourist gathering place that specializes in local cuisine like conch salad, a national delicacy. As a child growing up in the Bahamas, I have fond memories of Junkanoo with my family on Boxing Day. Some aunts and uncles would all plan months in advance and would make their costumes preparing to march in the event, not for competition or notoriety, but for the pure love of the festival. With colored crepe paper headdresses and costumes painstakingly crafted, I watched them help each other into their outfits, my eyes barely able to stay open as they left for the parade, usually after 10 p.m. The clanks of the cowbells they carried as they walked to the car rang out into the air as I watched them drive away. They would return the next day exhausted, but clearly they had always enjoyed themselves. It would be years later when I would go to my very first Junkanoo festival. 
As a 12-year-old boy, seeing and hearing it all for the first time was at first overwhelming to the senses. Then you feel the beat of the drums flowing through the air like an invisible force, strong enough to rattle your bones. Then you see the flurry of colors, like a beautiful flock of rainbow-colored birds moving in unison. A ballet of bodies intent on being the best, the brightest, and the loudest. Those that participate for the entire night must have the stamina. The marching, or rushing as it's appropriately called by the locals, is not for the faint of heart. It is a forward-moving charge of hundreds of performers, a true spectacle in every sense of the word. The experience gave me a new appreciation for those that dedicate their time and talents to the festival. Their hard work is put on display for the world to see. It was unlike anything I had ever experienced before, and have yet to experience anything like it. Junkanoo is as bohemian as the turquoise-colored waters and white sand beaches that make up our home. Without it, our cultural identity is missing a crucial element, and those that partake, or might just be there to watch and cheer on their favorite team, should always remember the enslaved people we as Bahamians have to thank for the creation of our most hallowed institution, that is Junkanoo. Before I wrap up this episode, I want to say a special thank you to any frontline workers that may be listening. You have been vital in the fight to help treat those afflicted with COVID-19 and other illnesses during this past year, and each and every one of you deserves our gratitude. Hospital staff, delivery couriers, food bank volunteers, among others who have kept our city safe and functioning during this crisis, we say thank you. During the last few months, we've been forced to alter our normal way of living, avoiding family and friends for far too long, with restrictions and lockdowns that prevent us from going about our lives as usual. It's been frustrating and difficult to bear, but there is relief coming in the form of vaccines that can help ease the suffering worldwide. All that's asked of us as citizens of the world is to bear it a little longer until the vaccines make their way around the globe. Let's remember to continue wearing our masks, social distancing, and washing our hands regularly. Be mindful of those who may be amongst the most vulnerable during this pandemic. We will make it through this, but we can only make it through it if we work together. Stay safe and donate to your local food bank or charity. If you're able, give what you can. You can learn more about us at www.thedarksideofparadise.com. Happy New Year, and thank you for listening to The Dark Side of Paradise.